0: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.
1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
2: This is the Serum Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management, archaeology, and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 258 for February 22nd, 2023. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talked to three people that are running the Utah Cultural Site Stewardship Program. So get ready to volunteer and engage because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Heather in Southern California.
3: Hi, everyone.
2: Bill in Northern California. Hello. And Mayanist Andrew in California.
3: Hey, guys. How's it going?
2: (laughs) All right. And I'm still here in Mexico, sunny Mexico, although it's crazy windy today. I went for a walk on the beach this morning and it was just uh, a little chilly. Had my jacket on and my coffee, but still pretty nice. Wouldn't trade it for, you know, the freezing, crazy cold temperatures that a lot of the country is going through right now. But either way... Today, we have somewhat of a rare event because we don't do interviews too often on this show. But not only do we have an interview, we have an interview with three different people from the Utah... Cultural Site Stewardship Program. I actually was talking to the to the Utah SHPO a few months ago because I got their newsletter and I was like, "Hey, we should have you on the show." And ended up getting in touch with somebody else, and they put me in touch with with Ian, who I'm going to introduce here in a second, or have him introduce himself. And then this show was born. So we're going to talk about that on today's episode. But before we get started, I want to hear a little bit about each one of our guests. You know what your background is, and what brought you to the uh, to the program. So we'll start with you, Ian.
4: Yeah. Hey. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for the opportunity to be on your show. We appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. My name is Ian Wright and I'm the Utah Cultural Site Stewardship Coordinator for the State Historic Preservation Office. It's a lot a lot of words about my <laughs> background. my I went to school and uh, went to field school in Kanab, Utah, and then cut my teeth in, in archaeology out in the field, a lot in Nevada and Utah. And then I kind of switched gears for a while and went to work in community engagement programming Hmm. around the country, engaging with different communities, getting them involved in education type programs, and then went back into cultural heritage. And I I have a background and a degree from Southern Utah University in history, where I did my archaeology field school, and then also a master's in cultural heritage management from Johns Hopkins University. So that's a little about me.
2: Awesome. Sounds good. I did a project down in Kanab a long time ago. It was was an interesting place. Yeah, it's a great town. (laughs) It is indeed. All right, Lexi, you're next on my list. Why don't we hear a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, my name is Lexi Carson, and I am the Data and Events Specialist for the UCSS program. I got my undergrad degree in Parks, Recreation, and Tourism at the University of Utah with an emphasis in cultural and natural resource management. Um, So a little bit different from archaeology, but I started in the state about two years ago working with the Division of Outdoor Recreation. I was an education specialist for them, working with volunteers on trails, service projects, different kinds of events. And putting together a history OHV ride is actually how I got in touch with Ian and familiar with this program, and then that's how I ended up here. So, little bit of a different background, but super fun.
2: Awesome. Well, I heard data, and I was like, mm, you might be a good guest for the Archaeotech podcast because my co-host over there, Paul, loves data and spreadsheets and things like that. So, it would be a, <laughs> it would be a great that's, interview." That's my whole so-
1: life. Gotta love the
2: spreadsheets. <laughs> awesome. Well, well, we'll put that one on the back burner and uh, might be in contact <laughs> later.
1: <laughs> Sweet.
2: <laughs>
5: Matthew, your turn. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm Matthew Podolinski. I'm the engagement specialist for the UCSS program, just primarily working with the stewards and the volunteers in the program. Just a little bit of my background I grew up in Montana. Got my undergraduate at the University of Montana, Missoula in history, and that really spurred me on to work in a variety of federal government jobs. So I worked for the Bureau of Land Management, the Forest Service, the Bureau of Reclamation, and also the National Park Service in several national parks. Uh, and then I came to Utah in Salt Lake City. I attended the University of Utah and got my master's in also parks, recreation, and tourism. So Lexi and I uh, have met each, met each other in school. <laughs> And my thesis, my research was studying moral and threat appeals on reducing depreciate behavior at rock imagery sites. And so that got me in connection with the shipo here. And then I got hired on. I've been with the UCSS program for about a year
2: and a half and kind of educating and meeting stewards and talking and teaching about archaeology. Well, that's fantastic. And I got to say, before I turn it over to Ian to tell us exactly what this program is, we talk about it on this show a lot and th- and then over on the Archaeotech show a lot because we talk about a lot of different technologies that are being brought in to be used in archaeology that have been well established in other fields. And it really is great having people that are part of the management and running of this program that don't necessarily have a strict archaeological background because we need people that are trained in other things and other fields and other you know outreach type events and things like that in order to to best do the things and that we need to do. And, you know, we always, we always tell people, like, stay in your lane, do what you're good at, right? And if you're not good at it, don't try to cram it into your resume, hire somebody <laughs> who is good at it. <laughs> so, you know, you'll, you'll be way more effective that way. So I definitely appreciate that. Ian, why don't you tell us all about what the Utah Cultural Site Stewardship Program actually is and what you guys do?
4: Yeah, no, it sounds good. The Utah Cultural Site Stewardship Programs, what it is, is it's a network of volunteers around the state of Utah who donate their time, uh, you know, both mileage and hours to go out and to monitor archaeological and cultural sites for damage, theft, vandalism, looting. It could be environmental, it could be human caused. And what they do is they report any changes that they see on sites back to land managers, and then the land managers determine the appropriate next step for it. And what's pretty cool is Utah has a centralized program, so it's all run out of the State Historic Preservation Office, and we work with every state and federal land managing agency within the state of Utah. Now, each field office, each forest has to give us permission to operate on their land, and then the -hmm. land managers actually identify which sites are a priority for them to have more eyes on. And the stewards are amazing. They're incredible volunteers. Some of them are professionals working in the field. Some of them are students. Some of them are just people who are interested in it. Some of them are local. Some of them are retired folks. And they give so much. And their impact is really being felt. Because, you know, the program is only about two years old here in Utah. And already we've seen a tremendous amount from them.
2: So how many volunteers do you guys have, roughly? 329 right now. 329. Wow. I mean, Utah, I, I heard Turkey once described as the world's largest open air museum and because of all the prehistoric monuments and and historic monuments and things like that there. But I would have to imagine Utah is up there for, you know, one of the world's biggest and, and most densely populated open air, like prehistoric cultural environments in the world. I mean, it's just so much there. We worked in Utah, my wife and I did for, for a few seasons and it was just I mean, there's just stuff all over the place, so three hundred and twenty nine volunteers sounds like a lot, but you could probably use twice that right
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know you you go through school and you get any archaeology book and you read about Egypt and Utah, you know because there's just so <laughs> right. so much here. <laughs>
2: Yeah, indeed. What's a typical job assignment? I guess for a volunteer, what's what's a typical thing that they would be asked to do? And you know, are, are they they're not like camping out on sites and you know with a with a pitchfork saying "Stay off my lawn," right? They're uh, what what are they doing? <laughs> I'll jump in on that. So stewards
5: are asked to go out to sites three to four times a year. If it's a sensitive site or you know a site that's you know, several miles in the backcountry. We may ask them to go once or twice a year, um, you know, anything to just get them out on the ground. Mm-hmm. But stewards are asked to go to these sites. We introduce them. We kinda, we show them the site. We show them what we're worried about. And we have this uh, app called Survey123 and then our monitoring yep. form, and they just go through it. They record their name, the site number, and just kind of give us a quick description. And then they take uh, up to five photos of the site, and they take this every single time and it kind of gives us a cool time lapse photography of the site itself. Our hope is that we never see any vandalism or theft or any impacts. Um, but if they ever do see any impacts to the site, they alert us. They alert the land manager, and we're able, and the land manager is able to kind of take those next steps to see, you know, how to protect it better. See whoever maybe take law enforcement. Okay. You know, I things toward those other folks. That's the general idea is getting just folks out and taking a look at the site and getting people on the ground. Because as you probably all know, land managers are incredibly busy. There might be Mm -hmm. only one for you know, 25,000 acres or more. And, (laughs) you know, it's nice to have, you know, stewards get out and actually take a look at these sites where land managers might not be able to.
2: Yeah, indeed. Now they take these photos. You mentioned they were, you know, it's kind of like a time-lapse photo of the site. Are they taking the same photos in the same location in the same direction in order to get that? Or are they just taking photos of things that are important around the site and you're just kind of happening to get that in, in the course of doing business?
5: Yeah, same photos, uh, same s- location every single time. What What's kind of interesting is like, you know, it, like, in spe- like specifically, let's just like take an example for a, a rock imagery site, Rochester panel or something. We asked that the stewards are taking these photos from a little bit further back to get like more of an overview context. Mm -hmm. And this is showing a panel itself or, you know, the log cabin or whatever it might be. But we're also seeing the surrounding area. And so we're able to see how vegetation changes or visitation trails, you know. And so we're getting the site itself, but also the surrounding area and how it changes in the surroundings.
2: So. Okay. Yeah. Some people listening to this may be familiar with that exercise. Uh, I've called it photo monitoring in the past because I I did a project for a mine outside Elko, Nevada for probably about nine years straight, where I would just go out to five different sites. started at three and we added a couple later on, but same sites, same series of photographs from the same spot in the same orientation. And then basically we were just assessing to be honest, it was to the Forest Service to assess whether or not the mine had either damaged the sites or allowed other people, because people were allowed to come hunting and do other stuff on on that leased property. And it was just a, a monitoring exercise, and it sounds like you're doing very much the same thing. And we'd, we'd, again, record things like anything we would see, any disturbances, or, or you know, there were arbor glyphs out there. If one of the trees had fallen down or something, we'd have to note that, because those those trees don't last forever, although it seems like they do sometimes. Yeah. So we would uh, we would do a very, a very similar thing now recording all this data and putting it into survey one, two, three, which I think we're all probably familiar with. Lexi, that sounds like it comes down into your uh, neck of the woods. What do you guys do with those data once it comes in? Because you've got 329 volunteers out there all visiting. Sounds like a number of sites a year. That sounds like a lot of data to deal with.
1: Yeah, it definitely is a lot of data. But the data is probably one of the most important parts of the program. Without the data, we're just a really cool club of a lot of people that like archaeology. (laughs) But the data actually not only facilitates the changes that need to be made to these specific areas to better protect the sites, but it helps the volunteers see the impact that they're actually making. So when those monitoring reports come in, we can see them on the back end. We like to share them with the stewards so they can kind of have a reference point, especially if it's their first visit. Then these reports go through the simping process and they end up at the Marriott Libraries system at the university of utah and so people are able to access these monitoring reports and we're able to communicate this what's going on with the land managers and uh, and other people but also a cool thing about these monitoring reports now is we visited archaeologists on site and they bring a monitoring report from a steward to like our site visit, depending on what we're discussing that day, they're like, this is the most updated information we have of the site. And it was something done by our stewards and they're able to access that, which is really cool.
2: That's awesome. That's really cool. Before we end this segment, Ian, I'm just wondering, this may be a question for you, you have again 3 again 329 volunteers lots and lots and lots of sites across the state of utah what percentage of the cultural resources that could be monitored by volunteers would you say are being volunteered like what's being what's being left out because you just simply don't have the people and the time for it
4: not even ten percent. I mean, we oh, have geez. over a hundred thousand archaeological sites in our, you know, recorded in our system alone. And and like Matt mentioned, yeah. where the state's digital archaeological database is is at the Marriott Library. But uh, I mean, yeah. Bear's Ears has six hundred thousand. Who knows? Just tons and tons. So we could definitely use a lot more stewards. And some of those sites need multiple stewards on them because they need, you know, they're being visited so heavily that sure. the more eyes on them, the better.
2: Well, what, what makes the threshold for this program? Because, I mean, up in the, you know, near Vernal, uh, we worked up there with Montgomery Archaeological Consultants for, like I said, about four months one time doing that big oil field project they were doing south of there. And I mean, we must have recorded hundreds of, you know, just like small lithic scatters and stuff like that. So what what kind of site makes the threshold for this?
4: You know, I'm glad you asked that because it, it's such a wide variety. I mean, we have and, – and the reason we say archaeological and cultural sites is because we even mm-hmm. have sites in the program that don't have a Smithsonian Trinomial number with them. or they, they may be sites that are important to the community. They're important culturally, locally, but maybe they don't meet that really nice, neat, perfect archaeological description. So we even include those into the program. So really, I guess the threshold is, is it valued to the community and is the local landman Manager concerned about it, and/or if we're concerned about it, oftentimes, it, say we hear about something going on, we'll reach yeah. out to the land manager or the city or the private landholder and ask if we can get some more eyes on the ground. And as of to date, almost everybody's just excited to have more people who are willing to help with, the, with you know, safeguard these resources.
2: Awesome, sounds good. All right, well, with that. I think we're going to take our first break and we'll come back and keep talking to these fine people about the Utah Cultural Site Stewardship Program back in a minute.
0: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.
2: Welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 258. And we are talking to Ian, Lexi, and Matthew from the Utah Cultural Site Stewardship Program. So, and I'm not sure which one of you guys is best to answer this. Maybe I'll start with you Ian and then you can throw it to who you think is best to answer this. But what is the value of using the public to monitor these archaeological sites? Where did this idea even come from? We we think of archaeologists doing this job and you know, I'm sure there's not enough archaeologists to actually do this job and probably no money for it either to be honest with you. So, <laughs> what's the what's the value of of setting this up and engaging the public to do it?
4: Yeah, you know, th- this is this is kind of one of our passion areas because for for years and years it seems like there was a gatekeeping mentality within archaeology, and then about seventeen years ish ago, it seems like that started to change because there you know realization not only are archaeologists recreationalists, but so much of the public out there are too, and the majority of these people are good folks. They care about these resources. They 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 have a lot more knowledge in many cases than the archaeologists do because they're from the areas they grew up around it, maybe they're descendants of it. So the idea was, hey, let's enlist those people. Let's get them involved on a kind of more uh, regulated uh, format of helping to monitor these sites. And we might as well capitalize on the fact that they're already out there, enlist them, and help, uh, correct, maybe to to put in some education that they maybe haven't been able to Mm -hmm. have. And it's been it's been super awesome for that regards. And, and, you know, really, the dirty little secret about stewarding, uh, monitoring and, and the stewardship programs is that public education is a big part of it, because once the public realizes that, hey, these places aren't abandoned, people do care about them, they're monitoring them, they're they're significant and they're being watched it starts to spread within the communities and it, you know, it starts to increase the the protection that happens out there in the field.
2: And that makes sense. And I'm wondering how you find the volunteers for this and then how you vet the volunteers for this. How do you keep those, you know, YouTube arrowhead hunters from becoming monitors and just lining their pockets? You know what I mean? How do you, how do you find, how do you recruit the people who do this? And then, like I said, like suss out whether or not they're actually going to do the right thing. <laughs>
4: Well, maybe I can just give a little background real quick and then I'll kick it over to Lexi. But one of the neat things about this program is we have the opportunity to work with people who have maybe never had training or been able to learn from an archaeologist. Now, a lot of archaeologists are part of this program, but we were out at a site the other day and just given an educational presentation for a different thing. And a guy came up to me and he goes, hey, you know what, Ian, I've been out here my whole life bottle hunting and, and digging and metal detecting this site. And after hearing about the stewardship program and why these places are important, I, you know, I realize that this isn't something that I should have been doing. And oftentimes mm. those make some of our best stewards, people that just kind of, they, they never had had that opportunity. They love the history. And then when they learn like, wow, okay, I, I see the value here. And, you know, I'll kick it over to Lexi to tell us just a little bit more about how we go out and, and find uh, stewards and our recruitment and why events, events are so important.
1: Sweet. Yeah. Thanks, Ian. Like he said, it's all about public education. It's just about getting out there and maybe making people more aware of what these, how significant these sites are and why they need to be protected. And that's where a lot of our events and presentations come in handy. We will go to different recreation clubs and present to them. We recently did that with a OHV group that's very prominent here in Utah and we gained some stewards just from that one presentation. We've gone and tabled at climbing events and we have plans this year to just expand more into, you know, the outdoor recreation side of things and just getting those people that are out there and using the land and are so close to these sites. It's really, it's Pretty easy to get them connected to these areas through the sites. So Hmm. that's where we use the events and tabling and just getting out there and just connecting with the public. I mean, we can find stewards anywhere, (laughs) is the thing, especially when you can be at those events where everyone kind of shares a common ground. Cultural and archaeological sites surprisingly play into a lot of different things that people like to do here in Utah.
2: I imagine finding people locally that are at least near the sites and kind of grew up in the area gives them a little more skin in the game too, right? They 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 may have a little more you know quote ownership over the area and and want to protect that. But also, it sounds like they probably need. I mean, knowing what I do of Utah, I imagine. Not a lot of the sites are are right next to a road. So you probably need a, a decent vehicle to to at least get close to the site, <laughs> if not all the way there in some cases. And then the ability to hike out to those sites as well in some cases, I'd imagine.
1: Yeah. So this kind of goes into our training process that we have for our volunteers, which is another way that we have a way to like vet the volunteers, screen them, kind of figure out if there's anything sketchy they might do on a site and decide where they will best fit in. But we do have an ability section on an application that we send after the training. We also discuss this in the training, but we find sites that best fit the people that want to steward them. Because obviously uh, there are hundreds of thousands of sites that need to be monitored. But if someone's not enjoying The site that they're going to, or the process that it takes to get there, they're not gonna go out there. So, some people don't wanna hike, and there are sites for them. There are people that only wanna do backpacking trips, and there are sites for them. We've even started to expand into finding other modes of transportation, recreational transportation that people have to get them out Mm -hmm. there. There are sites down by Lake Powell and Glen Canyon that can only be accessed by a motorized watercraft. So we need to find stewards that have that, that can go check on those. So it, yeah, Hmm. it's, it's amazing what we need to actually get to all those sites that are still unmonitored. And so again, that's why expanding who we're reaching out to is so valuable.
2: Sounds like you may be able to walk to some of those sites in Lake Powell that were underwater before, uh, unfortunately. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's, yeah. I mean, it's another good case where it's good to have locals around there, too, because I'm sure they're all very concerned about the water situation down there. And then the cultural resources popping up as a result, undoubtedly.
4: Yeah, for sure. Hey, Chris, you asked a yeah. little bit, too, about our, our vetting process. And I think Matt would be in a real good position to tell you a little bit about how we place sure. stewards and kind of determine where they go and, and watch them for a little while.
5: OK, yeah. 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 Thanks, Ian. Yeah. So our vetting process, you know, we get a, a whole range of people who, you know, they'll even take the training and the training gives them a good background on, you know, archaeological etiquette and visitation and what to and what to do and what not to do and what not but if we don't know somebody, you know, we, we, we do a little bit of vetting <clears throat> on the back end where we try to look them up. We try to look at their Facebook, make sure that they're not someone that's posting a lot of, you know, sensitive locations on their social media. But True. one of the things that we typically do is if we, we don't know them, if they're not an archaeologist or a trained archaeologist with the past profession or, or whatnot, we, we typically place them on well-known sites, Buckhorn Wash, Rochester Panel, Newspaper Rock those kind of things and being like, Hey, like, you know, this is a very popular site. We see a lot of visitation. And those are the sites that typically are getting maybe the most impact, uh, whether it's vandalism or depreciate behavior. And the three of us, uh, we all get to go out and meet the stewards and introduce them to sites. I primarily do that for my job. And it's kind of, you know, as you're out during the day with these, these stewards, you get to understand who they are, their background. And that's kind of the vetting process in and of itself as well. You kind of understand, you, you hear what they're saying, what they're asking. And yeah, sometimes there's a steward where you're yeah. like, Ooh, like that's a little bit of a red flag right there. Like maybe we'll <laughs> just keep you on newspaper rock and maybe not these sensitive sites that are in the back country or something like that. So you really yeah. get to know these stewards and it's so good that they're on these popular sites, but you really can be like, okay, like, you know, maybe we don't like continue this, you know, um, professional relationship, um, and stewarding in, you know, a more complex way and whatnot.
2: And are the resources available through your guys's program to, I don't know how to phrase this other than to say to double check every once in a while. I mean, you can't, you can't be going to every single site because that's why you have stewards and, and you can't go there all the time either, but does somebody who's not the site steward just go out to these sites and I don't know, just take a, put a second set of eyes on it every once in a while.
5: I'll I'll just speak to that. So like, either the three of us, if they're like, if we're in the area, and you know, we place another steward at another location, and we're like, you know, near a site that is known or popular, we might go out and do our own monitoring report. Mm-hmm. You know, we have that capability, and so that that that's one way to do that kind of stuff. We also have a a series of regional coordinators throughout the state of Utah. Uh, Utah's a large state. It's you know, it takes us six hours to get down to bears ears 5 hours to Kanab and that can make it difficult to meet stewards and see certain sites and those are like and so we have these regional coordinators that are in the San Juan area or Kanab and they are really able to help us out placing stewards but we can always reach out to them and be like hey we have a site that the land manager wants to have checked out and you know we're busy we can't get down there we have something planned and they have been a tremendous help and pretty much integral for the the system to be like, hey, go check out a site, get some other eyes. You know it. You've introduced people to it before. Go and please take a monitoring report or see if there's recent vandalism because we <laughs> notice a steward hasn't been going out or the steward has retired from the program and we just need to get more eyes on the ground. So sure. OK, uh, do you want to say anything more about that, Ian, with the regional coordinators? Just the only thing is
4: to, you know, we do involve uh, law enforcement in all of our trainings, And also when we place the stewards for the first time, we always try to have the local archaeologist with us so we can build that relationship between them and the stewards. And we don't place any stewards without the permission of the archaeologist. And also all of Mm -hmm. our stewards sign confidentiality forms, codes of conduct, assumption of risk. So, you know, there, there there are precautions there as well.
2: Okay. Awesome. And how is this, I mean, you've mentioned a number of people involved with this. How is this program... Funded. You know, it's such a cool way we've got it funded in Utah. And I'm glad you asked. And <laughs> what's so
4: neat in, in our state is we uh, to have a centralized program, meaning that we do the whole state is really unique because a lot of states, they only have maybe one monument has some stewards or one field office has some stewards this way. Uh, In in Utah, the state legislature passed House Bill 162 that effectively created this position and housed it within the SHPO. And the reason it's Mm. in the SHPO is because we have to work with communities anyways. We work within all the communities of Utah with all the land managing agencies. And we're in a really good position to manage this program and work with the folks that need to be involved to make it successful And so our three positions are are funded by the state of Utah. That being said, our land managing partners contribute funds into the program as well. And then that is then reallocated back into events and whatnot for stewards.
2: Okay, awesome. And do you formally engage any like your local c r m firms or anything like that are they involved in this at all aside from maybe inviting people out on new sites and things like that but are they involved in any sort of i don't know management or or you know funds or volunteering time or anything like that
4: yeah our our local archaeology companies have been amazing to work with. In fact, some of them have made it so that their employees can take time off to be stewards for so many hours a month. And and they've donated their expertise. So some of our, you know, like Matt had mentioned, some of our sites that have specific you know, they may be being monitored by law enforcement or they may be need a kind of an expert on them or they may be some sensitivity level there. We will oftentimes engage our stewards who work for the, the archaeology companies around the state to monitor those. and And then also a lot of times we'll go give presentations to those groups so that they are aware of what we're doing out on the land so that if they take on a project, they can let us know. And then we can oftentimes involve our stewards, which is really awesome.
2: Awesome. All right. Well, I think we're going to take a break just a little bit early because we've got some questions from our hosts who, who I have I haven't intentionally kept silent, but you guys have just been so great answering questions. <laughs> I want to give them a chance to ask some questions of you guys and, and get what's on their mind out into the open. So we'll do that on the other side of the break. Back in a minute.
4: Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout.
5: Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now
4: that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify.
0: Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com records. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands.
2: Welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 258, and we're talking about the Utah Cultural Site Stewardship Program. And Heather has a great question that we almost were going to get to in the last segment, but we saved it for this one. So go ahead, Heather.
3: <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious about tribal involvement. I, I think I'll just throw out that question right. first, and, and then we can take it from there.
4: So, we have, we have several federally recognized tribes here in the state of Utah, and one of our big goals within the program is to involve different descendant communities in different capacities, and, that, and that's all over the, over the board. You know, there's so many amazing descendant communities here within the state of Utah, and one of the things that we've been trying really hard to do is to work with uh, the local tribes to just open up relationships and develop friendships and, and they haven't been, you know, right along the lines of stewardship traditionally how you, how we may think of it. You know, stewardship, there are so many different understandings and concepts and ideas around stewardship. So where we try to work really hard is just to be open to the idea that there are so many different approaches to it and that there's no right one, right or wrong answer. And and our first step here and within this, the SHPO office is – Building relationships, building friendships, be being a resource and being somebody that is available and and somebody that participates and reaches out and that also is easy to engage with. So that has been kind of our first step with this program with all descendant communities here in the
3: state. Great. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear that there's, you know, some active partnering. I am curious though, like in the beginning, was that discussed and Shared, you know, the process. I don't know. I don't think any of you probably were there in the beginning of this program. But what kind of involvement as far as setting up protocols? Um, how how sites are going to be handled? How they're going to be? Um, just even the, you know, traversing the site and all the different types of strategies when it comes to stewarding. We do have a program in California that I was a part of early on in my career, and you know, it was great. I think. At the time, it probably could have used a little bit more of that tribal involvement. So I'm, I'm curious, and I'm also curious. Have you had any dissenting voices on it? Um, some tribal members that aren't all that thrilled about the general public being aware of where sites are, and how do you handle that?
4: You know, we, we, I was here when the programs kicked off, and we've been really lucky because within our department we have the Utah Division of Indian Affairs. And so we've been able to get, you know, to work with them very closely just to, to get some ideas there, to also participate in different tribal group meetings and make everyone aware of this program and to ask for feedback. And one of the big goals that we have with the program, too, you know, a lot of times we'll talk about putting People on archaeological sites, you know, and people will say, "Well, what about what about these sensitive sites? Why are you putting people there?" And honestly, a lot of times, our goal is to get people on the the sites that are being impacted. If it, if it's a sensitive site and it's not being impacted, we don't want to put people there to make a, a bigger impact. So we're not actively, you know, seeking out sites that are in and themselves relatively safe just being being less known. Now, when we do work on these sites, we work closely with the land managers to make sure that we're giving the appropriate people on them that it is appropriate in the first place to put people on them and then they're working closely with their tribal connections and they know what is and what isn't okay on those sites and we take we take their point on that.
3: Oh, well, that's good. That's good to hear. Are, are you folks more focused on the human impact to sites, or do you also look at the natural impact to sites? Because that brings up, you know, that would be where all sites probably, depending on where they are geographically, are impacted. So, you know, with fire, floods, things like that.
4: All of the above. Yeah. Any any impact to the sites that, that the stewards notice, they'll report. And again, we don't make a call on what ought to be done on that. We simply go out, monitor the sites, report back any damages or changes, and then the land managers will determine the appropriate next step. And that and that that next step may be nothing and or they may have a plan, you know, and that might come from working with local tribes that, hey, in this area, if something natural happens, let it happen.
5: Yeah, I'm, I'm also going to speak up to that. I just brought up our app right now and just a couple of things just to let you know, like what people might monitor. And there's some other things out offside this list, but increased food, foot traffic and visitation that way or vehicle traffic, trash, camping and campfires in the area, wood cutting or vegetation removal, collector piles or museum piles, digging, human remains exposed, Suspected, attempted or known theft of cultural materials, vandalism, graffiti or other intentional damage, structural damage, natural deterioration and then, you know, other damage as well. So we got a host of things on the app that like let people go in and, you know, alert us if they see any of these or anything that might be impacting the
2: site. I have a quick question just to follow up on some of that. I'm curious about the app itself. Is that something that you have in-house? Is that something that people can download
5: off of Apple, you know, or in between? How, how does that work precisely?
4: Matt, you want to take that one?
5: Yeah. After folks go through the training, it's a three-hour training, as we kind of mentioned. And right before we're about to get them out, we kind of we sign them up for Survey123. So Survey123, you can get it on any app's App Store, you know, Google Play, Google Play,
2: whatnot. Uh That's an Ezra.
5: However, you do need to get permission from us. And so I go on the back end or the three of us will go on the back end and invite folks to join our monitoring forms. And that's how they can download it. So it's not something that like the general public can go into survey one, two, three and just download a monitoring form and go out. (laughs) You have to get invited by us to to actually get the app. Or that yeah, monitor. okay, yeah, that totally makes sense. And then in terms of the forms and stuff, is that where the monitoring forms are? Like they're all on the app and then they fill it out on their phone. Yep, pretty much. Yeah. They and so they're able to go out and uh, turn it on, take the monitoring reports and then submit it and they're done. And then on the back end, the three of us will whoever like has placed the steward will take a look at the form, make sure there's no errors, and then we do the 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 process to upload it to the Marriott library. Yeah. Right. Right. Very cool. Are Sounds the, great, man.
3: Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, just along with that. So for the, the forms that are open, are they only allowed access to the sites that they are stewarding or are they allowed access to all the sites?
4: So so when we we meet them on the site, when they fill out those forms, they only, only the steward who monitors that site can see those monitoring reports. And then after a period of time, they're pulled off of even their app. And if, you know, and like Matt said, if down the road, they're like, oh, I'd like to see my report from a month, two months ago, we can get that to them.
2: So they don't have access. I think this is might be where Heather was going. They don't have access Mm -hmm. to the original site forms, just the monitoring reports they're creating
4: if the land manager wants them to see the original site form or a component of the original Mm -hmm. site form, then they do. But with the, with the, you know, they sign the form with the understanding that that remains a property of the land manager. And then they can be asked for it back at any time.
3: Okay. Yeah. I was also also curious about just, you know, whether or not once you have access to the app, I know that for the, Mm. we have a proprietary app with our company, and yeah we can we can manage in all sorts of ways so you Mm -hmm. they're basically only given access to the sites that they are stewarding
4: correct and and they and so they, they on that app all it is is just a form so mm-hmm. in some stewards, you know, depending on what site it may be, they may just be going out and, and monitoring it. Maybe they don't even have the site form, And we'll meet them on the, the land with the land manager. We'll talk about what it is we want them to look at and why. Other sites, sometimes the stewards may have the form. But as far as being able to access all that information, no. In the state of Utah, we have everything in, like Matt mentioned, the Marriott Library, which is protected. You have to have a PLIPCO license to be able right. to access it. And that's our monitoring reports, by the way, when they're uploaded, they go into that and you can only access that
3: with those licenses. Great. Looks like you guys have putting a lot of protections on there. That's good. Yeah,
4: we're we're pretty hardcore about it. We we try really you know, and and we'd rather we'd rather have have those checks in places in place than than not. And it does require a lot of paperwork and a lot of, you know, logins and whatnot, but we feel that it's worth it.
3: I have another question, uh, not related to the monitoring forms. How many archaeologists have been born from this program, <laughs> or have there any?
4: <laughs> you know, it's so it's so cool because we recently just spoke with the anthro- an anthropology class down at Southern Utah University, and we have a really neat regional coordinator position. And the idea is is to develop kind of like a site ambassador type program down the area for some of the sites that are really impacted where some of our stewards can go and hand out some educational material. And we went and pitched it to students. and We said, hey, we'd really like for you to apply for it. It's an AmeriCorps position. And so we're hoping that some archaeologists will be born from this program. And we have been also working a lot with Uh, different agencies will have part-time employees or they'll have people that are internships who are stewards. And, you know, it's an amazing opportunity for them to be able to network and to engage with different land managers from different agencies, including the state SHPO.
5: I was also going to say, like, and Lexi can speak to this a little bit better as well. You know, we have this amazing system set up for stewards to go out and, you know, you know, do a little bit of pseudo-archaeology and monitor. But one of the benefits of being a steward is we have events and workshops to basically educate and bring the archeology span field to stewards who are in the pro in the program. So uh, Lexi, do you want to, I think that'd be good for like, you know, events to talk about workshops and stuff like that. If you want to talk about that.
1: Yeah, for sure. That's what we like to give back to our stewards because we do want to make sure that they're getting a lot out of this program and they have some opportunities that they probably wouldn't have had if they hadn't joined the program. And so a good example is our annual stewardship get together. We do it once a year and we just bring everybody together. So stewards from all over the state get to talk to each other and they also get access to some awesome site visits. Um, These are usually very well-known sites with like a tour guide, someone who specializes in that area that can really talk about the history and the cultural significance. Um, And we do workshops along with that, some hands-on stuff um, in our last get-together. We were in Cedar City. We had someone from the Bureau of Land Management teach people how to make prehistoric duck decoys, which was something he taught himself how to do. And so the stewards <laughs> were able cool. to do that. And I mean, it was, it was amazing to see we har- like Ian and I harvested the bulrush, which is the plant used to make those. So we cut all this stuff down with the land manager's permission. We got all this stuff and then got to watch all the stewards turn it into this little duck. It was really cool. And then ha- another archeologist from a state park, taught people how to make pump drills. Hmm. Yeah. So every, everyone can do it. Every steward and everyone's interested in it, whether or not they're an archeologist. Um, So it's really cool to see them get involved and engaged that way. And with a lot of those kinds of archeology span based workshops, our stewards, like they get, it gets advertised to them first as again, as like a benefit to being a volunteer for the program.
2: Nice.
3: What's the youngest age for a site steward that you have involved? And have you reached out to youth groups? Because I'm just thinking this is, this is a, a great way to start education early on before, you know, they get other ideas of what can happen or what they can't do at archaeological sites that are, that are not positive. You know, have you reached out to Boy Scout troops or other kind of youth organizations?
4: Which, what's the youngest one, y'all? Is it is it
5: eight? Oh um, eight,
4: I would guess seven.
1: six or eight.
4: That being awesome. said, they do have to, you know, if they're under eighteen, they have to steward with with a guardian. Sure. They have to, oh, yeah. Of course. yeah. And that makes sense. We, yep, yep. And it's been really neat to see those numbers increase, and we've been able to engage with more classes. In fact, Lexi was just down teaching a class the other day. And then also some of these rides that we've done or different activities we've involved, we've opened it up to family and friends and the get togethers, they can bring their families. But yes, to answer your question, we do engage with classrooms. We do engage with clubs and we would like to do more and more of that. And we really welcome people to steward with their families. And we do ask those kids to go through the training as well.
3: Right.
2: Hmm. Awesome. Well, we are just about out of time here, but I just want to ask one last question and I'll direct this first to you, Ian. What is in the future for the site stewardship program? What's on the roadmap for you guys? Are you, are you gaining more volunteers every year than you're losing? Because I'm sure some people, you know, get into this and realize, oh yeah, this isn't for me. (laughs) But then other people probably try to recruit their friends and bring them in. So, you know, where, what's in the future for you guys in the near term?
4: Yeah, you know, one of the things we don't want to do is just to grow for growth's sake. So we sure. are really focusing on the stewards that we have. We have limited the, the, the trainings that we do a little bit more so that when we get those stewards trained, we can make sure to get them out in the field, like Lexi talked about earlier, match them to sites that really are within their abilities and interests. Also, this year we're really focusing on working within some of our rural communities and making sure that we are engaging the people that live there and getting them out on the ground in and around their areas. Then also with different descendant communities and cultural groups within the state of Utah, trying to work with them to to get stewards on sites that they have identified as culturally or archaeological significant and building partnerships so those are those are some of the things that we're working on going into this year and matt lexi feel free to jump in there if i miss anything
5: mostly covered it yeah like continuing to do service projects and you know really make sure that the stewards feel appreciated and that it's it's you know you can do this and just go out to your sites and monitor like three or four or you can potentially meet somebody in the program and get engaged in you know archaeology of Utah.
1: Yeah, the only thing I would have to add to all of that is just really strengthening our data points and really measuring that impact that stewards are making and seeing the work that does get done because they're out there.
2: Awesome. All right. Well, with that, thank you guys so much for coming on and telling everybody about this program. As archaeologists, you know, some people may be in some areas. They may be working for some companies, like you guys mentioned, and and I think, like Heather mentioned, even you know, giving people time off to maybe do this, and they and they could become aware of it. And we always get asked as archaeologists, you know, oh, how can I do something? Or I always wanted to be an archaeologist. Well, if you happen to be in Utah or any other state or area with a program, maybe look up that program, and you could get your toe in the archaeology world by you know becoming a steward of one of these cultural and uh, historic resources. So with that, thank you guys so much for coming on and we will see everybody else in two weeks.
0: Hey,
4: thank you. Thank we you. appreciate Thanks it.
1: Thanks so much.
2: That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com dot com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at archpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Take it easy. Bye, guys. Bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. And was edited by Chris Webster.
1: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.
0: You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement.